Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, November 26th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. We discuss this week's announcement of the property tax hike next year for Calgarians and ask her why she voted against an increase to police funding in the budget. Then we head stateside for an update on the stories making headlines south of the border. We get the latest on two high-profile murder cases that wrapped up this week and the current uptick of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. as we join Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent. Violence against women often extends beyond home and into the workplace. We take a look at how companies can create a culture of safety in the office with Harmi Mendoza, Executive Director of Woman Act. And finally, we catch up with Stamps legend and 770 broadcaster Greg Peterson on being named to the list of the top 75 all-time Calgary Stampeders. Of course, we also get a game prediction from Greg on this Sunday's Western semifinal against the Saskatchewan Roughriders. Every Friday, we have the privilege to have a chat with Mayor Jyoti Gondek and talk about the latest news coming out of City Hall. And she joins us once again on a Friday morning. Good morning to you, Mayor Gondek. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. we got a whole of, a variety of questions for you. But I want to start with uh, talking about property taxes. The increase will be less than 4%. I believe it's 3.67% you know, pegged for this year. How does council justify the increase to Calgary households? And can you give us some sort of an insight to the discussion behind closed doors about this increase? Uh, I can. Actually, um, I want to point out to everyone that it's your assessed property value that dictates whether your taxes go up or down mm-hmm. in addition to the operating budget we set. So sometimes uh, it's a bit of a curse when your property is valued higher than you would like it to be, um, but that's the way real estate markets work. In terms of the budget that we passed, uh, we didn't have any closed discussions. Everything was done publicly. There was amendments brought forward by members of council to reinstate some funding that's been cut in the past, and we had some very healthy debates. In the end, we are looking at about 387 which is in line with inflation and population growth. And in terms of how much that will sort of work out to for each Calgarian who owns a home, it's, it's, was it about $6? Is that what it worked out to? Yeah, it was roughly $6. I think just over six, I think for the year for the average single detached home, it ends up being about $75 for the full year. For clarity, Mayor Gondek, when does this go into effect? Like, when are people going to see uh, this this increase on their actual bill? So people will get their assessed value notices in January, and then they will get their bills in June. So there's a bit of time still. We have some questions for you about uh, a couple of the things where money was given, well, more money was given to, and that's the, the fire department, first of all, and the Calgary police. But I wanted to say kudos for doing all of this in open, not behind closed doors. I think that was a big, um, you know, a big concern, a big criticism of the, of the last council was that a lot of stuff was being done behind closed doors, and I think it made people very uncomfortable. So uh, I, I appreciate it. I would suspect that most Calgarians appreciate it was all done above board and, and you know, in the open. But let's talk about uh, the budget increase for the Calgary Police Service. And we did get somebody asking why you voted against increasing the police budget. Well, the police budget is in the neighborhood of $400 million, and there was this ask for an additional six um, to bring on more positions. And my opinion at this time is that 
they have the money they need to hire to attrition. They have the ability to hire more officers right now. And what I wanted to see was more progress on the human resources file. Um, and the indication that morale is low again says to me that they haven't done as much work as they need to in that regard. So that was my rationale. So, you know, as far as, you know, people uh, saying, okay, well, the, the defund, the police, uh, you know, uh, movement is alive and well, that is not the case from your outlook. The defund to fund folks have had conversations with us over the last couple of years, and their message has been very clear. This is a message that says you need to partner police services with other service providers so that we are actually going to calls fully prepared to take care of Calgarians. So mental health, addiction, homelessness, all of those things can be dealt with in a way that's other than enforcement. So that's the defund to fund message. And and did you feel that police have done enough you know, with that idea, that concept moving forward in order to get this money coming to them? I believe they have started down that path. I wish they had done more with the funds that we left available for them to move in that direction. So I'm just looking for more progress. Mm-hmm. You know, switching gears slightly, and that is moving from the Calgary Police Department to the CFD, the Calgary Fire Department, and needing some new bucks and needing some new positions. Your outlook on uh, the needs of the Calgary Fire Department? Uh, The needs of the fire department have been overlooked consistently year over year. And I think it's a bit by virtue of the fact that they get treated like a business unit. And when council asks for cuts, every business unit has to provide some. And I don't think that's appropriate. I've been saying that for a few years. If we are looking for cuts, they need to be done in a justified manner. And it shouldn't be a situation where everybody has to take a cut. The fire department certainly has taken their fair share over the years and they cannot function anymore without more funding. You know, is, is that sort of the, the overall concept coming out of these budget discussions, Mayor, is that, you know, we've cut and cut and cut and tried to be super lean over the past few years that Calgary's certainly been in a difficult position and now it's time that we need to stop cutting and, and perhaps give people more services? Well, we can see that we've made some pretty empty promises over time. It's, uh, it's nice to have a report like white goose flying it is unacceptable that we let it sit on a shelf and didn't take action so this council made a decision to actively invest in finding the land for an indigenous gathering place uh, we are very supportive of our indigenous relations office we have also made some movement toward looking at safety and security differently so instead of just providing security officers within parks for public safety, we are now looking at creating a team that's able to help people that are in those parks in extremely vulnerable situations. So it was a very compassionate discussion and we connected the dots between public safety as well as the people that are in positions of vulnerability and how do we revitalize our downtown if we actually focus on taking care of people. Mayor, we have to take a quick break. Can you stay with us for two more minutes? I can. Oh, good stuff. We're back with Mayor Jyoti Gondek, and thanks for staying with us, Mayor. No problem. Earlier, you mentioned the White Goose Flying Report on the Indian Residential School Truth and Reconciliation. So, sort of on a related note, we had a texter asking about that $15 million for the Indigenous Memorial coming out of city reserve funds. They're curious how reserve funds differ from other taxpayer dollars. Can you explain? Well, the reserve funds are really not that much different than taxpayer dollars. It happens in years when we um, anticipated spending more than we did, and we put the money into a reserve. We used about $30 million of reserve funds last year to, uh, to fill the gap between what taxpayers needed in terms of services and what we were collecting in property taxes. 
And this is another example of using the reserves to actually commit to things that we have not yet done. Okay. Got a text in here, and uh, we're uh, wondering if we want to represent the seniors with this one. Ask the mayor what relief seniors who are struggling on pension can expect so we can stay in our homes. So apparently oh, seniors are, uh, you know, uh, worried about this increase. Yeah, you know what, and I, I don't fault seniors for being concerned about what's happening. We have been um, incredibly vocal with our provincial government about the property tax system, the way it exists. It is very regressive for people whose property is worth a lot, yet they are on a very fixed income. Um, the way that we have to collect taxes forces us to look at property value as well, and that's a problem for seniors. So we're hoping to fix the property tax system to respect people who are on fixed income. We also have programs like the sliding scale for transit, and we are also compassionate about situations people are in if they contact our assessment department. Okay, perfect. Hey, let's end on a Friday on a, a happier, fun note than talking about money and budgets. Uh, we are asking folks their best concert that they've ever attended, and it's brought back some great memories of amazing bands. Best concert you have ever been to in your life, Mayor? Oh, I'm going to give you two. 21 Pilots was the last show I saw before we went into COVID times, okay. and it was amazing. It was here at the Saddle Dome. Um, I would have to say my very first concert was my favorite concert. It was Iggy Pop opening up for the Pretenders in Winnipeg. <laughs> Blew my mind. I'm kind of shocked. The Iggy Pop. I mean, I Are guess... Are you a rocker, man? <laughs> That's... I'm a bit of a rocker. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> a bit. If you've been to Eggy Pop, uh, you're uh, within uh, with both feet into the rock world. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Mayor. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend, everyone. You too. As well. That is Mayor Jyoti Gondek. We know COVID continues to surge south of the border and a major verdict handed down in a high-profile trial this week in the United States. With the latest news making headlines south of the border, we're joined this morning by Global News Washington Bureau reporter Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Sue. Good morning. Great to chat with you. Let's begin with an important trial with a verdict that uh, I think, uh, well, there was certainly, it was met with a lot of applause and a lot of people who were standing in the courthouse, outside of the courthouse. So let's talk about the murder trial of Ahmed Aubrey. Well, that's right. Uh, Travis, Travis McMichael, his father Gregory McMichael, and uh, William Roddy Bryan were all found guilty of various charges, including murder. Um, in the death of Ahmad Arbery, and it was a very, very different um, verdict than we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, decision just a few days before, but it was a welcome decision by the jury of almost all white people. This was, in case the viewers aren't familiar, this was a jogger in Georgia, a, a man who had jogged almost every day, and um, a few of the, three of his neighbors believed that he was breaking into homes and surrounded him with pickup trucks and eventually gunned him down. Now, the defense, as in as what happened with the Rittenhouse case, used self-defense, um, but that didn't hold up with the jury, and all three of the men were found guilty. So a very different verdict, and a, a one that America had a lot of eyes on because mm -hmm. of the Rittenhouse verdict, and it was, it was welcomed by a lot of people. Welcomed by a lot of people, but any high-profile case like this, sometimes there is backlash and reaction, but have uh, any of those uh, you know, nasty scenes uh, been unfolding whatsoever after the result of this? Not really. I mean, there were no you know, big protests like we've seen in the past. It, actually, with either of those uh, trials, um, some protests, both for and against people that agreed with the decisions and those who disagreed. But 
Um, not a lot of backlash. I think there's just been a lot of talk about what happened with each trial and what went wrong and what went right. Jennifer, uh, lots of talk about this new COVID variant in South Africa. Any word of that in the United States? Any cases that have been spotted there? And, and what are the numbers like? Because I've been hearing that certainly there's an uptick in cases going into the hospital system again. Right. The ho- I feel like a broken record I for know, the past 20, I know. 21 months. Um, the hospitalizations are going up um, and the cases are going up. America just crossed over the 48 million mark of cases of COVID-19. The worry and worry, worrisome trend, excuse me, is that um, cases are rising in at least, at last count, 46 out of the 50 states. And in some cases, rapidly, Michigan being the worst case right now in the country, um, there is a lot of concern about the holiday travel and the holiday season because Americans clearly were gathering more this Thanksgiving um, than they were last Thanksgiving. People felt like they couldn't see their families last Thanksgiving and yet did this Thanksgiving. And so there's a great concern that there's going to be an either a bigger uptick going into Christmas and after Christmas, so that we're in for some some really difficult months. The South African variant um, is a great concern, not only to the World Health Organization, but to the Biden administration and the doctors working for the Centers for Disease Control, just because America still has 100 million people who are unvaccinated and just the country can't get this pandemic under control. 100 million completely unvaccinated to Jennifer, or is that partially vaccinated? And in, in, in where, where are those numbers going? Are people, is it, is it stalled out is what I'm getting at? It's pretty much stalled out. Yeah. 100 million is the last figure I saw, and 81 million are eligible adults. Not We're not talking about kids. And so, um, you know, people who are not, have not been vaccinated, I don't believe, I mean, maybe it's, a few million will get vaccinated, but these are people who have decided for whatever reason they are not going to get vaccinated. And without them vaccinated and with these new variants, um, and I'm sure the South African one won't be the last we see, we're just not going to get to the point where hospitals can breathe easy and, and public health officials can breathe easy. And really any of us can, because not only do we have a problem with people getting the first vaccine, but we're not seeing a huge amount of people getting boosters. And so, you know, it just is one of these things that's just not going to go away. And, and there's, you know, there's lockdowns now in Europe and several countries in Europe. And the question is, is it going to come here? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly it's going to be more mask mandates and, and um, the federal government just had its vaccine mandate go into effect uh, last Monday, November 22nd. Um, and then, you know, so the, the question becomes after they do all the investigations, you know, why exemptions, religious, medical, are, how many people are going to get fired because they wouldn't get the vaccine? I mean, it's just it's a never ending story here and it's exhausting, really. You know, when you mentioned Thanksgiving, is that just going to cause a greater uptick in the cases as well with everybody you know, flying and celebrating and seeing family and friends this weekend? Yeah, you know, see, so the flight numbers were. I I checked and double-checked them because the figure was that 2 million people a day were passing through America's airports from the Friday a week ago, a week ago Friday, through this coming Sunday. And so when you think about how many people are getting on planes 
and how many people are seeing friends and relatives for the holiday. I mean, the numbers were staggering to me, and I kept checking and checking, thinking I read that wrong. I must have read that wrong, but it wasn't wrong. Wow. And so when you think about how many people have traveled, not only by plane, but by car and train, and the number of gatherings, I mean, you know, I'm on Facebook. I see what I see, and every table looked pretty full to me um, of, of, you know, my friends. And so, you know, there's... Not only are we seeing an uptick in cases and hospitalizations, but it's going to get worse again. I'm just reading here on Reuters News, and and I think that as Canadians, sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this because Christmas is kind of the crown jewel holiday of the year. I think we lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, on Reuters, it's saying that it is the busiest travel day, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, so a couple of days ago, and this week is the busiest travel week. Why is it that Thanksgiving, you know, has more family gatherings and has more oomph than Christmas in the U.S.? Why do you think that is? That is a really good question, Andy, and I have no idea. (laughs) I just, it's one of those holidays, and I don't know why it's any bigger than Christmas. I think with Christmas, people scatter more. You know, I just, I find that um, families and friends get together more at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. There's no no football. There's no football at Christmas. (laughs) That's why. No football, um, but I think people invite friends in and neighbors in more. Like if you know where to go with Thanksgiving, come on over to my house, and that and therefore the gatherings become larger. Um, I'm not really sure why it's bigger than Christmas um, because it's just, there's pretty much the same food and less presents. It is an excellent question. We'll continue to monitor Thanksgiving in the U.S. and Black Friday. Are you going shopping today? We have to let you go, but are you heading out to get some deals? I'm not because I have to work, and I definitely oh. don't. I'm kind of a Cyber Monday girl. Okay, good. Mostly because my kids, you know, I have kids who don't go to stores. I mean, that generation, they don't go to stores. Right, they right, buy right. everything online. So, you know, Monday will be my day. Okay, then fair I'm enough. Broke. Well, I'm, yeah. as soon as I get out of here, I'm going Black Friday shopping. So we'll, nice. we'll, we'll compare our deals come Tuesday, Jennifer. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Appreciate it. To buy. <laughs> <laughs> have a great weekend. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you later. You bet. Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington Bureau reporter. According to Statistics Canada, 25% of women have experienced sexual misconduct in their workplace in the previous year. So what steps do companies need to take to create a culture of safety in the workplace? Joining us to help understand how to address this issue is Harmony Harmi Mendoza, excuse me, Executive Director of Wim, Women Act. Good morning to you, Harmi. Good morning. Before we go any further, what is Women Act and, and what do you folks do? Yes, we are a charitable organization that works to eradicate violence against women. We do that through community mobilization. We undertake research and we work on policy and education. Harmi, let's talk a little bit about this. How common is sexual harassment? I probably know the answer to that, but but violence in the workplace too against women. How, how common is this? It's very common, and violence at home often extends to the workplace. And in our latest survey, we saw numbers that confirm our initial thoughts. Um, I'm not shocked about the numbers we saw, and uh, it's still a very concerning issue. Let's talk about, you know, why it goes unreported. And, you know, I I know that's kind of a loaded question, uh, but I would think in 2021 we'd see increased reporting of these things. Why do people, you know, hold back from bringing these issues forward? 
Yeah, well, top reasons uh, employees uh, are fearful to speak uh, based on our survey are safety. They just don't feel secure or free from any backlash from the perpetrator. And that is true for 33% of our respondents. And what is even more concerning is that 41% of our responders were female uh, versus 25% who um don't feel safe reporting. So it's definitely an important difference there. Stigma of speaking up is another top reason they will not speak up. Um, And also past reports that have resulted in no action being taken. Mm. And so if they know that nothing is going to happen, why report it Mm. in the first first place? Harmi, can you connect those dots for me in terms of violence in the home and how that relates to or transcends then to the workplace? Oh my God, it's very, very linked that related and very, very actually common. Think about it. Say um, a friend of you is experiencing violence and she leaves home. She doesn't feel safe. She leaves and she goes to, I don't know, to a shelter, to um, a, I don't know, friend's house. You know, where is the place the perpetrator will find her for sure? It will be at work. He probably knows that's where she's going to be the next business day or the next Mm -hmm. time. He knows that she needs to go to work. And so employers have to be aware of that risk. And sometimes um, there are no clear policies, clear procedures. Maybe workplaces do not speak or talk about this. And this issue is very common. As you mentioned in your initial statistics, it's, it's, it's still common. It's still here. It's very alive, and especially in the context of the pandemic, um, we know it has increased. Harmi, you know, if, if support isn't coming from the top to address this issue, can employees use strength in numbers and kind of band together and get some sort of a unity and unified, uh, you know, front to battle something like this together? Oh, absolutely. You know what? We all have a role to play. Um, employers, employees, friends, family members, we all have a role to play. But it would definitely, I would definitely ask executives, leaders, and managers to support workplaces. Um, so book a session um, that teaches employee awareness of gender-based violence or bystander interventions and positive workplace cultures that prevent harassment and violence. Uh, sometimes we're even more afraid because we don't know what to do. And if people know what to do or, or have clear information, then we'll have better results. And especially victims will be safer. Absolutely. A, a safe work environment is crucial. And, you know, if that even just means a scan card or whatever it is before you're able to get near any kind of employee, really important. Yes. So what about educating the companies themselves to create that culture of safety in the workplace? Are there tools available for businesses, for business owners, for example? Yes, and that's exactly one of the new initiatives uh, we have at, at Woman Act. So I'll invite uh, your audience to visit our website, um, womanact.ca. We are offering 60 minutes webinars that Canadian uh, companies can access, and um, we could definitely help companies to uh, start learning about it, identifying uh, signs, and all the way to policy procedures. What is it that you need to be aware? And you would probably even be surprised how much uh, violence against women or intimate partner violence is impacting your business and your organization. It's interesting, though, you know, the the wrinkle that the pandemic has brought in 
in in many ways as far as people rethinking work. Could, you know, the thought of this change somebody's mind because they've been able to work from home as saying, I want to pull the pin and not go back to the office because I feel more security at home? That could definitely be a, 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 a situation that you you can you can um, uh, definitely encounter. However, evidence has shown that harassment, for example, has increased for those working remotely as well as changing nature. Mm-hmm. You know, this includes employees receiving sexual messages through email or text messages or workspace that chat platforms or video calls. So working virtually has made it challenging to witness or monitor employee conduct in addition to there you know, being a lack of information about how employees can intervene when working virtually. And so do not hesitate, um, uh, offer uh, opportunities for your workplace to know what to do, uh, to know who to call, to have information about experts who actually have been doing this work for many years. Um, there's nothing worse, uh, again, I'll repeat again, than not knowing what to do when there are tools out, out there that you can use. There is information available. Um, and, and like I said, again, we would be happy to partner with any um, organization, agency to have this really important conversation. Harmi, this uh, Stats Canada research, I know you've got some results going region by region. Can you share anything for Calgary or Alberta-centric information if people are saying, oh, this doesn't happen here? I'm guessing that it sure does. Yeah, well, uh, yes, absolutely. Nationally, four in 10 Canadian workers experience some form of harassment in the workplace. Now, in Alberta specifically, that's 4.5 in 10 Canadian workers. So it's slightly higher than the national average. And so, and that number was true nationally for again, 50% of women respondents versus 33% of men. Very interesting and, uh, you know, timely as again, work is changing for us, Harmi. Uh, so maybe an, an opportunity to implement some of the positive mm-hmm. changes as we kind of rethink the way we work. Appreciate your time this morning. Oh, uh, thank you for the opportunity and for allowing for this message to go out there uh, to your audience. And uh, truly pleasure to be here with you this morning. Thank you very much. That is Harmi Mendoza, Executive Director of Woman Act, online at womanact.ca. It's a gentleman who really needs no introduction, but uh, generally you don't hear from him at this time of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Peterson, uh, you know him from our Stamps broadcasts, but longtime Calgary Stampeders fans, 1984 to 1992, remember his play on the field. Good morning to you, Greg. Good morning. It's great to talk with uh, you and Sue. Uh, getting up super early for, and again, your, your call time is more so at one o'clock <laughs> on Sunday coming up here. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about this because, you know what, and I was there Every single season that you played, and of course in 1992, putting a cap on your play on the field of your career. But let's talk about this honor. 75 years of Calgary Stampeders football. They put out the top 75 of all time. You are on said list. Greg, tell us what that means to you. Oh, it was a big honor. You know, you know I look at some of the big names that are on there and the over 3,000 players really that have played for the Stampeders throughout the 75-year history. So it's quite an honor, and I'm kind of privileged in the fact that I grew up in Calgary. I went to school down in the States. I got a football scholarship, but uh, fortunately for me, I was able to come back to my hometown play football because I was what's called a territorial pick at that time where the teams had a chance to kind of protect one 
player that played high school football in their local area. I think it's a great thing. I was that protected player, and then to play all my years with the Stampeders, it's just a, a big privilege and an honor. That's amazing. Okay, so West All-Star, CFL All-Star, you won a Grey Cup. Are any of those the things that stand out most for you, or is it more the people, or is it the city? What is it that you loved so much about playing? Well, you know, I think every football player, it's the players and, and the love and the bond and the brotherhood that you you meet with players. I mean, they're my lifelong friends. And Calgary is such a great city that we have many players, uh, you American players, that stay around after. And uh, But, you know, Marshall Toner, Tony Spalatini, Tom Spalatini, Stu Laird, Kent Warnock, uh, Matt Finley, these guys are all, they made their careers. You know, in the CFL, we're not like the NHL. We don't make a gazillion dollars mm-hmm. to make us uh, rich for the rest of our life. We all have to, you know, work. And they all stayed in Calgary and they're lifelong friends. So that's, I think, what every player really cherishes is what I cherish. And then, of course, winning the Great Cup in 92 uh, uh, was a uh, feather at the account. I could have played a couple more years, but I decided my law practice was taken off. Why not go out with a, a Great Cup win? So I went in and told Wally Bono, our coach at the time, that I'm retiring. He was a little bit uh, peeved at me, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I, I always wanted to kind of go out in my terms and most players don't have that, that opportunity. So another thing, I was privileged to go out with that Great Cup 92 win. Going out with the Cup now, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk uh, football moving forward and all eyes on Sunday. We asked our, our Dave McIver, you know, for some kind of a comparison. He said, you know, probably 2001 for the season that the Calgary Stampeders had uh, moving into the postseason. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? Can we compare this year to any previous years in your broadcast career that you've seen? No, this year's a little bit different. Uh, 2001, the only difference, and I totally agree with Dave on that, is that they had quite kind of a veteran team. This is a very young football team. Uh, Most of the players, they're not a bunch of rookies, but they're a bunch of second, third, fourth-year players. And that's when players really start to take off and develop. This team's got a bright future. If they can keep these players uh, together and how well they've done the latter part of this year. This could be a very good run, a good football team. Uh, and, and that's how it's different. And, you know, they started off slow, but they were young, and they were making mistakes. And, you know, Bo Levi wasn't playing. And Bo Levi didn't have his best ga- a couple of games those first little while. But mm-hmm. Bo, Bo's now back doing what he's supposed to do. Some of the young players have matured a little bit, and they're learning from their experience. And I honestly think this team, I'm hopeful they're going to go and win the Grey Cup. They certainly got that ability. But, you know, obviously Saskatchewan is step number one. I do think we're better in Saskatchewan. Uh, step number two would be Winnipeg. Winnipeg has had the best team. They probably got the best team, but we could we could beat them. So I'm I'm looking for a, a good playoff run with this team. Uh, I think most people are pretty excited for that this weekend. Obviously, it's going to be the big step, first one, to get towards that Grey Cup. Uh, you have any pregame rituals or anything that you do even before you go on and, and begin broadcasting a game, Greg? Uh, I had lots of pregame rituals as a player, as all players do. I had to put you know, my socks on a certain way, blah, blah, blah. But with regard to doing the broadcast, you know, Mark and I have been doing it now for 24 years. Uh, It's a privilege to broadcast with Mark. He's the best in the game. Uh, But we just do a lot of preparation. I've got all the preparation I I do. I talk to all the coaches. Uh, I've got my depth chart. You do your study. And it's kind of like I'm sure you guys in school know that when you go into a test, um, you study this much, 100% of the material, and you use about 2% of it. But the thing about the radio broadcast is 
when that time comes to pull out that stat or to pull out that analysis, you, you got you can pull it down and you got to say it in a concise matter. Uh, and that just takes a lot of preparation. And Mark and I do a lot of preparation to give the, the listeners a, a good, you could say, view in their mind of what's going on down in the field. And it shows, and we hear it each and every game. We'll be listening at 1 o'clock for the pregame, 2.30 kickoff on Sunday. Greg, uh, congratulations on this honor, and thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks. I really do appreciate it. The exact title here is Greg Peterson, broadcaster and Stamps legend, Mm -hmm. and he really bottom-lined it. 75, he's on that list of the top 75 of all time. Yep. There have been about 3,000 players in the history of the Stamps. Wow. What an honor. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.